We have an intimate relationship to language. Words matter, and poetry can help us question language itself, according to Deborah Paredes. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and this is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, this podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Today, I'm speaking to Deborah Paredes, class of 1993. She's a professor of creative writing and ethnic studies at Columbia University and the author of Year of the Dog, a new collection of poetry inspired by the events of and immediately after 1970, the year of Paredes' birth. Before you hear our conversation, I want to give you an idea of what her words sound like. So here is one of her pieces that she calls a body part idiom poem. A show of hands. My father taught me never to show my hand. Always play the hand you're dealt. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Gotta hand it to him. He lived his life hand to mouth, even before Nam. He knew close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades go hand to hand combat. Idle hands are the devil's play into the enemy's hand it over and out of his hands. Ringing a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. He wasn't so good with his hands. Took his life into his own blood on his hands on the one hand and on the other. Deborah Paredes spoke to me by phone from her home in New York. So first, this new collection of yours, uh, Year of the Dog, it, it travels back in time to the year of your birth, 1970. Um, and I want to know, as you were beginning to collect your thoughts and put this book of poetry together, what did you discover about America when you went back in time to this year, to 1970? You know, I find that um, in thinking through the poems, you know, that ended up in the book, um, I, I realized that in so many ways, so much of my life and my writing life certainly has always been drawn to kind of figure, trying to um, figure out sort of the lessons that I've learned or the sort of impact of the Vietnam War era uh, um, mm -hmm. during that sort of marked the year of my birth in 1970. I think um, so much of that stemmed from having grown up the daughter of a Vietnam vet and having that be a silence in our house, even as I was very well aware that it was very much impacting us. And I think by returning to that time period, it was interesting because um, that when I was finishing the book, it was the year 2018. And 2018 was also happened to be another year of the dog. And it also happened to be the year, at least at that time, of the greatest number of school shootings in the nation's history. And returning back to the 70, you know, to 1970, and, and while living out, you know, 2018, it made me understand, in some ways, the, the ways that war continues to be ongoing in so many ways, even as that moment of um, the way we've understood war, the way we documented war was very much unique to um, the Vietnam era as well. I think that so much of our understanding of violence and war and how, uh, you know, and how we kind of, our lives were shaped by those images. You know, I am of a generation that very much was informed by those images. Um, 
that came out of Vietnam War because of the unrestricted access that uh, photojournalists had at the time that were, of course, by the time I got to Trinity in the, in the early 90s and the first Gulf War, you know, were, were was very much different. I think by that point, um, there was an understanding that, wow, you know, giving unrestricted access to photojournalists could have an impact on larger understandings or support or the lack thereof of war. And so in the in the sort of uh, conflicts and the wars that have arisen since then or that we've participated in, there's been a different relationship to um, that photojournalists have had to, um, to that. It's been more filtered, more sanitized, so to speak. It has. It's been much more restricted in some ways, you know, that there are now embedded photographers that are sort of, you know, um, given certain kinds of access. Right. And that certain kinds of images um, are now allowed or not um, in thinking in, you know, sort of on television. You know, we think back to Vietnam and I go back to that era and, and recall my parents and even my own early memories of, you know, Walter Cronkite counting the Vietnam dead every day on TV. That is not something that has happened in the years since, despite the fact that media proliferation has happened, right? But that isn't something we knew daily in, you know, in, in either one of the Gulf Wars. Um, and, or even in regards to 9-11, there were certain images that ha- that sort of emerged right away um, after the events of 9-11 and that were sort of, you know, um, not allowed to circulate again or certainly not encouraged to do so afterwards. Yeah, you think of the falling man photo, which Absolutely. is, uh, you know, a striking image, but one, mm-hmm. you, and you can find it if you look for it, but it's not one right. that is some, that some, something that people immediately think of when they think of 9-11, they think of just an explosion of the towers. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, in in, in going back and, and thinking through the ideas of documentation, right, that I think the, the Vietnam era really does, um, and especially as Latinos in relation to Vietnam, the idea of documentation very much is something that we have to wrestle with um, in thinking about the era and in thinking about Latinos. I think that as someone who grew up Latina, um, the idea of documentation has always been a very vexed concept, right? Because in many ways, Latinos, um, as of course recent um, events in our country have have <clears throat> only reinforced, you know, that we have, I think, a very healthy suspicion around ideas of documented status and how that might either legitimate or not one's status as a citizen, one's status as a useful participant in society, one's status as a, you know, as a participant in war. You know, I think about, for example, Latinos um, during the Vietnam era, you know, comprised uh, only about 11, 10 to 11 percent of the population, but 20 percent of the casualties, right, nearly 20 percent of the casualties in Vietnam. And that is also, um, those figures are themselves quite conservative, given that Latinos were classified by the military as white. So it's also hard to figure out, you know, to, to kind of figure out how um, to document their participation. And so I think documentation with regards to Latinos, but also with regards to role, photography's role in documentation. And when when is a photograph, I think, you know, what kind of work does it do ideologically? What kind of work does it do to sometimes reinforce violence or to solicit a kind of a call to arms or to call to peace, I think is is something I also really learned in returning to um, this time period. Well, in two of the uh, um, 
most famous photos to come out of that era are um, key moments in your collection. There's the famous Kent State photo. You mentioned school shootings a moment ago. And then there's also the photo of Kim Phu running down the road in Vietnam naked after being burned by napalm. Um, mm-hmm. th- those two particular po- uh, photos, um, what leapt out about them to you that made you want to center a bunch of your, the work in this book on, on them? Sure. So the the title of the book not only refers to the year of my birth, 1970, which was also the year my father was preparing to go to Vietnam, and of course it was right in the middle of the of the um, you know the U.S. participation in in the Vietnam War, but it also refers to uh, or hopes I hope to have it evoke um, the mythic figure of Hecuba turning into a dog. Right, she is grieving so much over the horrors of the Trojan War that her howling literally transforms her into a dog, and by becoming a dog, she leaps from the from the ship where she's being taken back as a captive. Um, and so I was very interested in the idea of women. Uh, and their outcry and the sort of a, a fit, what my, I might think of as a feminist elegy around war. Like what have been the who and what both mythically and historically have been the women whose outcries or whose, whose anguish over war has then become either sites of our um, understanding of the war or sites of transformation in our thinking about war. And so I was really struck by the photos, as you mentioned, um, Sean Filo's photo of um, Marianne Vecchio um, in uh, Kent State, and then, of course, of Kim Fook, Nick Ute's photo of Kim Fook. Um, I was really drawn by both, one, how much those photos have come to stand in for um, the era, and two, how they both feature women in anguish, mm-hmm. right? And women who also, you know, um, in, in the case of Kim Fook, right, racialized as an as an other. In the case of Marianne Vecchio, someone who was um, at the time sort of seen to be on the margins of society because she, she actually wasn't a Kent State student and uh, was a young runaway at the time and sort of was um, figured interestingly as a result of that. But but both of those photos, I think, work on us um, on our emotionally, work ideologically by kind of really showcasing and in some ways sensationalizing, you know, feminine grief, right, or the grief of a young woman. So I wanted in my book to return to that and to also interrogate it and to trouble it, trouble our uh, historic relationship we have to those photos. So I do, I wanted to also defamiliarize us and resensitize us to the horrors because they've circulated so much. In many ways, we can become inured to the violence that they and the horror that they represent. And I wanted us to re-familiarize ourselves with that horror by, um, you know, collaging them, by buttressing them up against um, other kinds of voices, other kinds of questions, other kinds of images as well. Um, And, you know, for example, images that my father, snapshots my father took in Vietnam and captions from his photos that kind of help us think through the role of photography, but also the role of displaying women's grief um, in wartime. Was your father uh, a veteran who did talk about his experiences, or did he not? Did he shut it in? Um, like many veterans of that era, and many um, refugees. Also, I talk about I talk with a lot of children, people my age who are who were children of refugees. Right? Uh, like many in that generation, he did not talk about it at all when I was growing up. Um, more recently has come around to to talking about it, but even still, it is 
and it was um, an enormous silence in our household, as it was for many um, veteran households Mm -hmm. um, of the era. And I think it was precisely that silence, actually, that stirred in me the desire to write, right? That I was, you know, was in a house, a very loving household, but one that was occupied by tremendous silence around this particular um, issue. And because, you know, I grew up in the 70s, you know, I was born, as, as the book suggests, in 1970. So, you know, the first five years of my life were still during the, the Vietnam War. You know, the, the aftermath, you know, was very, very, still very fresh to us growing up. And um, it was because of that silence, I think I really sought out uh, poetry in particular and its relationship to language and its relationship to talking about things sometimes through metaphor, right, through some, you know, kind of a point removed. Um, that it, it, I, drew, I was drawn to that, I think, as a way to make sense of that silence, as to speak, as a way to speak into it. I also remember, and I know I'm not alone in this among other children who I've, t- children of the war that I've talked to, I also remember, because of the silence, going through, I knew there was a photo album that my dad had had from the period that he had taken, snapshots he had taken while he was deployed and while he was um, serving. And I remember poring over those photographs as a child, thinking, well, maybe I'll find some kind of answer in here. I mean, I don't even think in some ways it was entirely coherent, but I felt a sense of searching. Um, and I think that is precisely because of the, the hold that photographs, and particularly in relation to war, have over us, like that somehow they will reveal some kind of a truth, right, whether they actually do or not. Uh, and so I think the combination of of, of, you know, my relationship to language and the Vietnam era's relationship to photographs kind of come together for me uh, in filling some of that silence. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to my conversation with professor, poet, and author Deborah Paredes. I think it's interesting that even one of the structures of one of your poems uh, incorporates a sort of silence. There's uh, one in there uh, with where the words hearts and minds are removed from uh, the the sentences that are in the poem. And of course, you know, hearts and minds was a very famous phrase that President Johnson used about talking to needing to win over the hearts and minds of uh, the Vietnam uh, people in order to actually win the war. And I thought it was very uh, interesting the way you remove those words from that uh, that poem as you went through it. Yes, I am very interested in the book in thinking about, you know, silences and absences, um, and, you know, especially in regards to documentation, right? For as much as the, as documentation attempts to, um, you know, make present or make visible certain things, it always is, um, you know, just as concerned with absence or, you know, what is outside the frame. And in that case, in particular with that poem, I do... Um, have a poem that is, as you mentioned, quite invested in, in really interrogating that phrase of hearts and minds. You know, I want it was a way for me to also try to get us to one defamiliarize ourselves with such a now a very well known phrase, and to think about what it ends up having to be absent. What do we have to um, deny in our hearts or kind of not think about, you know, in our minds to then put forward these kinds of. Um, uh, commitments to escalated violence in this case, or the escalation of violence. 
And as well, that poem is part of a series of poems in the book. Because I was interested again in thinking and taking things that were sort of so deeply familiar to us that, you know, we, we sort of don't even think about them. I was interested in thinking about idioms, um, you know, which is like some of the most hackneyed and familiar kind of language we have. And thinking about idioms that used um, parts of the body as part of them. So, oh, something costs an arm and a leg or, oh, you mm. know, or a phrase like, you know, the hearts and minds of, of, of the Vietnamese people as, as a phrase that's so familiar. And several of the poems kind of take on um, idioms or familiar phrases that have body parts in them and try to kind of make them strange as a way to, one, think about how the body itself gets um, torn asunder by war, but also to really get us to defamiliarize ourselves with the way or to kind of become aware of, I guess, how language also operates in in that kind of um, workings of, of the body in relation to war. We've touched a little bit about how um, Vietnam uh, tore the country apart, and I'm wondering uh, uh, how you feel about poetry and its ability to help us heal, and more generally maybe about what role poetry can serve in this year, this fractured year that we're in, in 2020. Sure. You know, um, in some ways I'm not at all surprised that <clears throat> there's data that has been um, circulating that you know, after in the days after the 2016 election, um, the circulation of poetry and the sharing of poetry online via social media and and also via, um, you know, organizations like the American Academy of Poets that, um, you know, sends out poem a days that that, it, that there was an extraordinary rise following that period in the circulation and the sharing um, and the reading of poetry. Right. And there's also other um other uh, data that's come out through the NEA surveys that show a rise in recent years of just the readership of poetry, especially among young people. And so in many ways, I'm not surprised by that because poetry, I think, has always been uh, a space where, you know, as they say, you can't, you know, you can't get the news from poetry, but men, you know, but, but people have often died from, you know, not getting what is in there to, to sort of butcher that quote, but that there is something that I think, especially in an era of, fake news, especially in a, an era of deep distrust of other rhetorical forms that poetry can still have because of its both intimate relationship with language and its ways by which it helps us question language and the way it kind of elevates us from the everydayness of language, that it functions um, and can function, certainly in a time like this year, as a space where even if, you know, where we get some measure of, let's say, you know, capital T truth or some measure of... Um, or some space whereby our feelings in regards to the truths we're not getting might might have a space to live and be aired and be heard. How has your relationship to poetry changed over your life? I mean, do you do you write differently now uh, than you did before? Maybe differently as a parent than you did uh, before that? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so certainly, when I was younger, I. Um, you know, was uh, just, you know, I, I think you could argue was much more of just a narrative poet, you know, who, and uh, which I still write quite a lot of narrative poems. But I remember um, before I became a parent, but, er, but you know, while I was developing my craft as an adult, I remember being really afraid of, of or very annoyed by, or um, certainly uh, averse to what we might call poems that are what we call received forms, you know, sonnets and villanelles and mm -hmm. all of these kind of strict forms. And I remember 
pushing up against that thinking, oh, I don't like that much order in my <laughs> life. And I, and so I decided one point to say, you know what, like, you just need to try to do this. And what I found uh, over the course of that exploration was I, a tremendous delight and a tremendous um, free, freedom, actually, in that kind of formalism, which, you know, if I think about some of my favorite artists, you know, Nina Simone, who in some way teaches me so much about form and yet, and how to expand it, even as you live within it, or um, some of my favorite poets, Natasha Trethewey, for example, who's also someone who's an, a, a, a tremendous formalist. Um, so that, that's one way in which my poetry has changed over the course of my life is embracing these forms and pushing against them. But also as a, as a parent, I'm finding post-parenthood and certainly realizing and reckoning with the connectedness that we have with not just our nuclear family and our children, but kind of how it helped, has helped sort of blur the borders between me and all of all those around us. I've, I've also begun to write more poems that are kind of have long and unwinding syntax right. in ways that I think, you know, are sort of trying to, you know, to sort of evacuation of those end stops make it so that everything is, is is syntactically connected, which I think in some ways reflects a larger belief in the connectedness I have to so many around me. And I think living in New York City, certainly you're up against that every day, right? I mean, I, you know, you touch a stranger every day, you're on the train. You know? <laughs> so I think reckoning with that has also been really important for my work. I want to ask you a little bit about Canto Mundo um, and the foundation of that uh, to advance voices of Latino and Latina poets. And um, do you feel those voices are being heard more or more frequently now um, as a result of uh, um, efforts like that as well as um, in, ge in general? Mm -hmm. I was really fortunate that, um, it, you know, over 10 years ago, I was a part of the um, – co-founding uh, uh, of, of Canto Mundo. Actually, one of the other co-founders is a professor at Trinity as we speak, uh, Norma Icantu. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, along with Norma and Carmen Tafoya, uh, the poet, former poet laureate of Texas, and uh, Celeste Mendoza and um, uh, Pablo Martinez, the five of us, you know, kind of sat around a kitchen table in, you know, at Norma's house in San Antonio and looked around and said, you know, we're tired of saying, where is the Latino Cave Canem? The Cave Canem being, of course, the organization for African-American poets. It's been around for over 20 years. Or where is the Latino Cundimon, which is the Asian-American uh, poets organization? And we said, we have to stop acting and we need to sort of make it. And, um, you know, we had no money, but we had, in, you know, incredible determination and tenacity. And we were able to, to, to build this organization with a tremendous amount of, of mentorship as well from the other organizations. And what we found is, you know, absolutely, I think we've provided an opportunity for Latino poets to come together. They, we, we sponsor a retreat every summer where folks can apply and work together and hash out issues and concerns, whether they're aesthetic or cultural or national or linguistic, um, together uh, in a space amongst other Latino communities, Latinx communities. And it's been, I think, absolutely amazing to see how much the poetry landscape has changed in those in the last decade, as a result, in part, to organizations like Antemundo and Kundiman and Cave Canem, but also, I think, as a result of these poets who become involved in these organizations themselves, I think, feel a sense of empowerment to then go on on their own and do things and build things and support one another in ways that we couldn't have even foreseen. I mean, I still think that as the, you know, the recent American dirt controversy certainly, you know, um, speaks to, you know, there's still tremendous strides that need to be taken in the publishing industry, certainly. But I do find that within the poetry world, there, there have been 
I think, really foundational changes as a result of, of writers of color being, you know, um, sort of finally um, getting access to, to some of these platforms. Good. And finally, uh, I, I think I read somewhere that uh, you're currently at work on a book about divas. Is that correct? I am. All yeah. right. So in a and you wrote this great different... essay about Celia Cruz for NPR, too, which I, I want to tell everybody to read. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I um, actually, yes. So in my other life, aside from being a, a poet, uh, so that's the kind of creative writing part of my of my job, I'm also a performance scholar. I was trained at uh, Northwestern as, a, as a, a performance scholar. Wrote my first book about the impact of Selena after her death and among Latino communities. And, um, and so that other part of my life is is very much interested, still very much informed by feminism, but thinking about, uh, in some ways, a little bit more joyous to work on, <laughs> because it's not about anguish all the time, but is thinking through, um, I, you know, I've always been curious about and drawn to, you know, complicated, over-the-top, extremely virtuosic women. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so, and I think that, you know, if, if that's not at least one of the very essential definitions of a diva, I don't know what is. But um, so in this next book that I'm actually at work on, I was just working on it before we um, our interview began. I'm interested in thinking about the role of divas, uh, both in my own life, but in American culture more broadly um, during the last 50 years, during the course of my lifetime anyways, um, and especially women of color and divas of color, thinking about how you know, how, why do we love them? Why do we loathe them? You know, what kind of work have they done? And and seeing in the last 50 years, certainly even a change in how divas are perceived in popular culture. If we think about the 1990s, there was a tremendous proliferation just of the term itself being used in popular culture. And what's that about? And it's so like, yeah, it's I'm like they applied it to that. everybody. It's like they applied it to any anybody that was rich and looked great, you know, and was yep. a singer. Absolutely. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we were perhaps afraid of using any kind of word like feminism or feminist or, you know, or we didn't have enough of a word bank, I think, in some ways, for how to describe women in public, you know, who um, were in some ways complicated or messy. Right. And I think what often falls out, though, has fallen out of our of that popular definition or usage of diva is the virtuosity part, because that for me is kind of always got to be there, you mm-hmm. know, because <laughs> part of I think what becomes threatening is that a woman, you know, in public being virtuosic can be scary to some. And so I'm interested in thinking about that, especially when they are women of color um, as well. Well, and it's because they know that they have power, not just from resources, but from the talent, really. I mean, I've got the talent and I know it. Absolutely. And being unapologetic about it. I think that that's absolutely true. And I think you see that, um, you know, in everyone from, you know, uh, Serena Williams to, you know, any number of people, you know, that may be far less famous. And in my book as well, I talk not just about kind of, you know, famous women like Rita Moreno or Serena or, um, uh, or others, but I also talk about people like in my own life, you know, I have, I think every family has a figure in their family. And in my case, uh, an aunt, a beloved Thea, who was always kind of troublesome and, and, over the top and yet kind of extravagant and, and glamorous. And, and these figures, you know, in my, in, in my own childhood really informed my own, I think, um, interest in feminism, in, in glamour, in, you know, performance and all of these things, even as they themselves may not be, have kind of uh, adopted any of those words <laughs> to describe themselves. It is always an aunt, always a tia, isn't it? <laughs> yes, always an aunt. Exactly. Usually unmarried. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, Deborah Paredes, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. 
You're welcome. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk, Nathan. Deborah Paredes spoke to me by phone from her home in New York. After we finished our conversation, I asked her to send audio of one of my favorite poems from her new collection, Year of the Dog. Here's that reading. Mother Tongue Begins with an epigraph. If I could, I'd grow tongues in my arms and hands and hair, in the soles of my feet, a thousand tongues all talking, all crying together. That's Hecuba, from Euripides' play Hecuba. If I could bite my tongue and have it split into two whole daughters that split again in endless fissioning, splitting the very thing, keeping their whole line going. If I could, I would watch my tongue and its tongue set wagging their tails, some silver-tongued, some wicked. I'd hold my tongue out like an offering or a battalion, a thousand tongues talking in their native tongue, a forked tongue language, all of them speaking in tongues and tongue lashing like Medusa's head or the tentacles of a giant squid. I'd stick out all of my tongues. I'd let my tongues loose and lassoing my prey some slither-whipped, some wick-snuffed. I'd leave them all. Wild tongues can't be tongue-tamed. They can only be tied. Cut. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.